Well, this morning we are concluding our sermon series called Waging Peace as we look at this passage about the adulterous woman. But before we dive into it, I think it's important to note that, as you may see in your Bibles, the, the text is actually bracketed because this story is not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts, meaning this story is most likely not originally from John. Some scholars believe that it actually might have come from Luke or perhaps from what's called the oral tradition. As you may remember, in the ancient world, the majority of the people couldn't read. And so stories about Jesus were shared more often than not by word of mouth. This most likely is one such story. But regardless, both Pastor John and I believe that this story is authentic, inspired by the Holy Spirit, even if it wasn't originally found in John. Apparently there were mistakes even in the ancient world when it came to their technology. Luckily, our technology is so much better today, (laughs) right? Seamless, no problems here. But if you have uh, questions about uh, what's called either source criticism or textual criticism, there's a lot of conversations about this stuff, Uh, I invite you to talk to me after the service. Like I said, I believe this text is the inspired word of God. Actually, commenting on this passage and this very topic, in the 16th century, John Calvin said, there is nothing unworthy of the apostolic spirit here. Therefore, there's no reason for us not to use it to our advantage. So there you have it. Calvin has spoken. So we will press on. But the reality is that this story is completely consistent with the teaching of the New Testament. And it powerfully reflects the very heart of God. The heart of Christ. In so many ways, this is a classic Jesus interaction. You have the religious leaders confronting Jesus, trying to trap him, like they've done many times throughout the Gospels. This happened to Jesus often. They want to know how he is going to interpret the sacred law. They've tried to trap him on questions concerning the Sabbath, ritual cleanliness, questions about the resurrection, whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. Here they're confronting Jesus about adultery. The religious leaders are hoping to put Jesus in a lose-lose situation. Either he's going to agree with this strict teaching from the law and come off as harsh as all of the people will witness him agreeing with this woman being stoned to death. Or he's going to dismiss the law, contradicting the words of Moses. As verse 6 says, they are testing him so they might be able to find a charge against him. 
as you can imagine, this scene is tense. It begins with Jesus teaching at the temple in front of a large crowd when all of a sudden the Pharisees and the scribes come in and they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery. Verse 3 says that they make her stand in front of everyone. Talk about humiliating. Beyond embarrassing. Think about the things that you've done in your life that you're not particularly proud of. And friends, we all have those moments. I did some bizarre stuff in my teenage years. (laughs) My mom's shaking her head because she knows. (laughs) Last couple of weeks, I've said things that I regret. We all have those moments. And imagine taking those things that you are ashamed about or embarrassed about and having them put on display for everyone you know to see. Your family, your friends, your church, your neighbors, your co-workers, everybody knows about it now. Of course, this woman is not only shamed, she is most certainly terrified. She knows what's at stake. Perhaps she even looks around and she sees some of these guys holding a stone, preparing for what is next. Being stoned to death is a terrible way to die. Perhaps you saw the movie, The Stoning of Soroya M. My wife and I actually saw it a couple of years ago. It's based on a true story of an Iranian woman who is stoned to death in modern times. Absolutely brutal. There are places in the world that still practice stoning. It's legal in a number of Muslim countries, or at the very least, it's a customary punishment. And more often than not, it's women who are the victims. And in this text, it is more than troubling that only the woman is present for this humiliating confrontation, specifically because the law of Moses taught that both the man and the woman should be stoned to death. It's from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And if this woman was, as they say, caught in the act, then the guy would have been there as well. I'm, now, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. It takes two. But where did the guy go? <laughs> Only the woman is being held accountable? Friends, there is something very fishy going on here, something very suspicious. One thing I love about this story, it's another example of Jesus treating women differently than how they are usually treated in a patriarchal world. 
the religious leaders say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? We know these religious leaders are adamantly opposed to Jesus. They will use this woman. They will use the law. They will use the greed of Judas, whatever they can, to thwart Jesus because his teaching is a threat to their power. It's a threat to their privilege. It's a threat to their influence. Chapter 8 even ends with the Pharisees picking up stones to throw at Jesus. But he gets away. They hate the way of Christ. And they use the Bible for their own purposes. We see this all the time, don't we? You know, the Bible says you shouldn't do that. You know, the Bible says that you're probably going to go to hell. You know, the Bible says you're wrong and I'm Right. You can use the Bible to argue whatever point you want for your own purpose if you know what you're doing. Perhaps if you don't know what you're doing. And sometimes people take the Bible and they turn it into a weapon against others. Now we know, friends, that the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as Hebrews says. But that sword of truth is to be wielded with love and humility. And just because it's sharper than any two-edged sword doesn't mean you're supposed to attack people with Bible verses in order to win an argument or in order to push your own agenda. Now, you're never going to hear me say, or you're never going to hear Pastor John say, don't read the Bible, don't study the Bible. Absolutely, we are a Bible-believing church. Read the Bible, study the Bible, know the Bible. But don't just throw Bible proof texts at each other. Sit down and read the scriptures together in context. Read, know, study the scriptures in the spirit of Christ, who humbled himself, who came not to be served, but to serve Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for you and me and even them. Craig Barnes, the president of Princeton Seminary, says it like this, of course, there's a difference between right and wrong. Of course, there's a difference between truth and error. But if you do not love those that you think are wrong, then the truth you hold does not belong to Jesus Christ. The Bible is living and active Because it's God's love letter to the world. And friends, we can never separate the word of God 
from the love of God. When we do that, we become a Pharisee. Teacher, the law of Moses says that we are to stone this woman. Now what do you say? And here, Jesus bends down and he writes with his finger on the ground. Now this is kind of a surprising thing that Jesus does. This is a tense situation. It's a life and death scenario for this woman. You have these religious elites coming to Jesus, questioning him, and then he just seems to ignore them and starts writing in the dirt. There's a lot of speculation out there to why Jesus does this, or what exactly did Jesus write Teachers in the ancient world would often write in the dust and in the dirt because they didn't have chalkboards or blackboards. Was Jesus teaching something? Some people say that Jesus was writing down the sins of all of these quote-unquote hypocrites. Some people say that Jesus wrote down the names of everyone present. Some folks just say he was doodling, trying to show his sense of contempt for this situation. Was he being dramatic? Was he creatively de-escalating the tension? We do not know. We do know, however, that what he says next is truly radical. Let he who has no sin be the first to throw a stone. But technically, they're right, though, the Pharisees and the scribes. According to the law, if she was caught in adultery, then they get to stone her. But friends, throwing stones is especially tempting when you think you're right. When you think that you have all the answers. When you think that perhaps this other person just doesn't know. They're inferior they're beneath you or perhaps they're just plain wrong but you know what you're right you're right in that case throwing the stone is easy the stones that we throw are those words those actions that are intended to hurt someone or belittle someone, whether it's an argument with your parent or your spouse, a fight that you have with a friend, a word behind someone's back, a heated Facebook exchange, you might be holding the perfect argument, but if it is cloaked in malice or self-righteousness, drop the stone. I've cast plenty of stones in my life and I wish I wouldn't have. Because once you throw it, you don't get to take it back. Peace. Shalom. As we have been talking about it is only possible because of grace. This is a grace story. In life, we're either the adulterous woman 
or were a stone bearer. The woman's clearly in the wrong. Jesus doesn't dismiss her sin as insignificant. His final words to her, neither do I condemn you. However, go and sin no more. This is a reset for her, made possible by grace, but Jesus is still committed to her transformation. Do you think she was grateful for what she was just spared from? Are you grateful from what you're being spared from? Am I? When we're the ones holding the stone, we have to remember that we were once the adulterous woman. Perhaps our rebellion was different, but sin is sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. When you find yourself holding the stone, and you will, when that moment comes, Look at the cross and drop the stone. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 about a king who forgave a great debt to a servant. It was a humongous debt. The servant couldn't possibly pay it. But when he pleaded with the king and said, please, be patient with me. The king forgives the debt, all of it, grace. And as the servant went out, he came across a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller debt. And that servant grabbed him by the throat and he said, pay me what you owe me. And then that servant pleaded with him, please be patient with me. Give me more time. But he refused. And he had him put in prison. Well, when the king heard about this, the king handed the unforgiving servant over to be tortured until his debt could be paid. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying this, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if you do not forgive your brother and your sister from the heart. Because you are forgiven, because of that amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, drop the stone. Friends, we're seeing a lot of stones thrown these days. The thing I like about Paul, which you often say, is that it always begins with grace. If we can start with grace, for each other. We have hope for something different in this church. If we can be reminded that we were forgiven at one point, maybe we can extend grace to our neighbor, to our fellow church member, to our family member, to our enemy. Shalom is possible because of the grace of God. This is our calling, church. 
the grace that we get and the grace that we give. Let's pray.